are related to one another. In introducing this, I think it's helpful that we try to better understand some of these big words are, maybe they're not long, but they're just, they're obviously words we don't use every day in our culture. Words like redemption. You know, uh, redemption. It, it, it's, uh, it's been trivialized almost, you know, uh, a couple of years back, I remember since we're in the foot, we never talk about football. And, uh, for some reason today it keeps coming to my mind as far as since Aaron got it started, I guess. I remember two Saturday, two, uh, years ago, a certain Saturday in mid October, early November, I'm not sure which, we said redemption Saturday. All the teams that were playing were rivals and one team had waxed the other team the year before and this was Redemption Saturday for the team that had lost the previous year. They got a chance to win big this year, right? It's, it's trivialized. The word redemption has a lot of theological depth to it. If you, if you took the word and then let it, let it fall out, all of its meanings start falling out, and, and you and you equate that to fluid, the room would be flooded. This room would be flooded. It would overflow with what all is contained in one little word, like redemption. And so we're going to talk about redemption. We're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. And, you know, Paul in this verse writes it in a way he doesn't write it, uh, I don't think, ever in the New Testament. And he, he, he distinguishes it in one one little letter. Forgiveness of he usually says sin. In this verse, he says sins. And it's a little nuance, a little change. But same, uh, s- still, it's very important. And as you can tell, we're, we're all about little words and little letters. And, 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 and those little letters and little words make thoughts, causes, which, when they're combined, make sentences, which make paragraphs, which make chapters, which make books, which make... The Bible, we're all about the little words. And we're going to talk a lot this morning about prepositions. Like, in whom? In. Preposition. Why did he use that one? Why not another one? He had a lot of choices. Why didn't he say through? Why didn't he say by? Why did he use in? And then we're going to look at another preposition later that says that it actually does use, he does choose to use through. Why, why in and through in the positions that he put them? There's a purpose and there's a reason as Paul communicates God's truth to us as he's moved along by the Spirit. And so as you can tell, we're going to focus on some little things that are really big things. And hopefully at the end, the picture will kind of start to come together. The puzzle will start to come together in our minds, which will call us to sing from our hearts, Jesus, thank you. As I think that should be our response at the end of the day. So we look at the passage. And I want to, just so we stay in the flow of things, read through through verse 7, from verse 3 to verse 7. Blessed be the God, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Vague, broad, big thought. Okay, and then he says... These are the blessings. Verse 4. Even as He chose us, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in a community, in love, in a community of love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. What was the purpose of His will? 
that His grace, His glorious grace might be praised, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, Jesus Christ. The only Beloved One, really. In Him, our verse for today, we have, in in the Beloved One, we have redemption through the Beloved One's blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So we have this text laying out in front of us. These, these words, these small words. And what do they mean? Well, you know, in the biblical day, the best way, uh, the thing that the people in Paul's day would have thought of when they read verse 7, when they heard it read, they would have immediately thought of slavery. They would have thought of slavery. And that might be offensive to you. The fact that Paul would use, God would use, the terminology of slavery to talk about our salvation. But the reason it offends you, and the reason it might offend me, is that we don't truly understand who we are in our nature. We are slaves in our natural condition. We are slaves of sin, to sin. We're slaves. We are complicit in it, but we can't even change it. You, you get that? When you sin, you immediately, saved or lost, say, I'm not going to do that again. And what do you do? Yeah, you do it again. And when you get done that time, you beg, plead, and barter and borrow. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to will myself. You do good for a while and then you do it again. You've been there, hadn't you? You've made the promises. The problem is you can't keep the promises in your natural self. You are a slave to sin. You are chained to it. It has you. And it might, for a season, let you think you're free. But at some moment, uncontrolled by you, totally beyond anything you can do to change the matter, the chain will yank. And you'll sin again. It has you. It's like a spider web. You ever sat in the woods or sat on the edge of your porch at home and watched a spider spin his web? It's a beautiful thing. I've sat and watched them spin one. I've sat in the woods deer hunting long enough to watch as they spin it, finish it, sit over to the side, and an unexpecting fly flies into it and wraps up. The spider doesn't move initially. The spider waits. And he waits. And he watches. And there's a moment in the struggle when the fly is tangled and bound. Totally bound. Slave to the spider. The harder he wiggles against the web, the more entangled he becomes. The harder you work against your sin in your flesh, the more entangled you become. And the spider sits and waits until you are imprisoned completely. And then he pounces. He is the Lord of this earth in some way, the prince of the power of the air in this season. He has been defeated. His tombstone is already etched and written. 
but he still roams seeking whom he may devour. And the harder you struggle against him the, in your own flesh, the more enslaved you are to him. And there's nothing you can do about it. You are his slave. That's the background to our passage. That's what Paul's thinking about. Paul was thinking about the slave market. And he says, in him, we have redemption. Get past the offense and get to the magnificent grace contained in that word. Redemption. Listen, sinner. Lost man, woman. You are in the grip of sin. You are a slave to it. And you know it, and I know it, and you know God knows it. The only hope you have is that God redeems, redeemed you in Christ. It's the only hope you have. So that's the powerful message we want to unpack. And so let's get with it. God, first of all, has redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us in the work of Jesus Christ. We are by nature the slaves of sin as we've been talking about. We have been redeemed, if you're a believer this morning, from slavery to sin by God in Christ. We have been redeemed. Now, there's a rich tradition to this term, redeemed, ransomed. And it begins in the Old Testament for us. The Old Testament is replete with this idea. It's the words used over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, there's several words, three words, for this term, redemption, Used, and they're used very specifically. I want to talk about them quickly. First is kofir. Kofir, which means ransom price. The background to the word we see in the Greek, or in the English, in your verse, redeemed, finds some of its meaning in the word kofir, which means ransom price. Exodus 21, 30-32. In the law, God uses this classic way of talking. Listen to what He says. If a, if a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Okay? Now, what's he saying? In the law, God provided for if a man accidentally, throughout, uh, no, through no power of his own, but an animal gored, one of his animals gored, an ox, gored a man to death. If that happened, God said, let him pay the ransom price. What he owes because his animal killed that other man is what? He owes his life. My ox gets out of my fence and kills one of Jesse's kids. Then what I owe Jesse is my life. But what God provides in the law is for Jesse to set the price. For me to pay for his son's death. Ransom it. Whatever the price is, he has to pay it. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master a ransom price of 30 shekels of silver, and the ox should be stoned. 
So the first word that gives us meaning for our word redemption here in our text is this word, the ransom price. Your, what he's saying is your life is worth something. And when it's taken from you, it must be paid for. Whatever the price is, that's what you must pay. All right? The next word in the Old Testament, also translated ransomed or redeemed, is gall. G-A-L, G-A-A-L. Gall. All right? Which means to redeem. Exodus 6, 6. God talking to his people, Israel, says this to them. Tells Moses to tell them. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God says, you're enslaved to Egypt. And I'm going to pay the price so that you might be let loose from your slavery. What was the price? The ten plagues against the people of Egypt. The ultimate price for letting the people go from Egypt, it cost the firstborn of every house of the people of Egypt. That's what it cost them. And so God, at that price, took His people out of slavery to the Egyptians. And this word, gall, is used there in the text. Now the third word, which means goel. Goel is used in the Old Testament, and it is most commonly translated kinsman. Redeemer. And we find its background in Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. One of the most beautiful passages in the Old Testament, I might say. It reads like this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. A little background. What You, you might know the story, you might not. Ruth had been the daughter, and it was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi had three sons. And her husband. And they all, all went off into, uh, into uh, a near country because of a famine. They went to Moab. And when they were in the land, all three sons marry Moabites, which is against the law. You shouldn't mix or intermarry with the people around you, for they'll lead you into idolatry, the Lord said to his people. But they did it. And all three of her sons and her husband die. While they're dwelling in the land. And they, they're on the way back. And, and Naomi at the border of Israel tells the Moabite women, her daughter-in-laws, go home to your fathers. Go home to your people. I'm going to go back to my people. She had no hope in the world. She had no sons. She had no husband. In their system, she was broke. She was a, not only a widow, she was broke. She had nothing. She didn't want these women, young, that could remarry in their own land to pay the price. So she told them to go home. Two went home, one did not. Ruth stayed. And we get the pledge of Ruth, the vow of Ruth. You hear it sometimes in in, uh, wedding ceremonies in the Christian tradition, right? Wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That That was Ruth's conversion. That was her conversion. And she comes over with Naomi, and she lives with her mother-in-law, and she's single, and Naomi's single. And they're thrown on the care of one man named Boaz, going out into his field and picking from the edges of the field to stay alive. That's all they had. And Boaz saw her, and he saw that she was marriable, which means he liked what he saw. 
But he found out that she had a nearer kinsman than him. She knew this is Naomi's daughter-in-law. Her husband is dead. And there's a man that should take her. And that's where we are. When Boaz realizes there's one closer to him in the line, in the family line, because the rule is if, if your husband dies, his next of kin should marry you and give him offspring if you don't have any children. That was the way it worked. So that the land of Egypt, of, of Israel would stay within its own families. It wouldn't go from family to family, person to person. So there was no son. Ruth had no children. Boaz Caesar, he finds out the background. He knows that he's not the nearest of kin. That's where we are, right here. So what does he do? He, f- he finds the Redeemer. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to her our relative, Elimelech. She's so destitute, she's selling what her husband owned. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. Boaz is being honest with him. Listen to what the nearest uh, kin, the Redeemer, says. He says, I'll redeem it. Boaz then said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also are required to marry Ruth the Moabitess. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it is here, I think. He's a racist. He won't marry her because she's a Moabite. The widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. He had a convenient excuse. He excused himself from his responsibility. Take my, listen to what he says, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I can't redeem the land. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Ch- Chilion and Mahalan. Now, that's the story of the kinsman Redeemer in the Old Testament. It's interesting. In the New Testament account of who Jesus is, where he comes from, there's two women mentioned, two Gentiles. One, a harlot from Jericho. The other, Ruth, the Moabitess. Because when Boaz married her, they had a son. And his name was Obed. And Obed bore Jesse, and Jesse bore David. The story of the kinsman redeemer is by God sovereignly placed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So it's never forgotten. So Paul can write about redemption and the people of Israel and the Gentile Christians who have been now taught about the background of the Old Testament immediately think of the kinsman redeemer when they see the word.
So, we see it's a ransom price. We see it also has the background of redeeming someone at the cost of something else. And it also has the connotation of kinsman redeemer. And so that's the background in the Old Testament for the word we see simply redeemed in our text. There's a rich tradition not only in the Old Testament, there's a rich tradition in the Greek, in the classic Greek which surrounds our writing here. Leon Morris, in his book on preaching the cross, says that redemption is a vital concept that all Christians should grasp. He explains the Old Testament background, and then he talks about the first century Greek context of the word. It's mainly used, he says, in the purchase of slaves. A contract would have read, Carlton pays Dave the sum of $500 for the slave Aaron and the condition, on the condition that he shall be set free. That's the way they wrote their, their language, their text. And it was redemption texts. They're all through the ancient writings, these slave contracts. So that's the background of the Greek. You have the Hebrew background. You have the Greek background. Now, what about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we have three words that are used for redemption. The first is a word which means to buy in a marketplace. Agarazo. It comes from Revelation 5.9. We see it in Revelation 5.9 when they sang a song. Worthy are you talking to Jesus, to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, agarazzo, you ransomed, you bought, you purchased, you redeemed, people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So that's one word for redemption. It means to buy in a marketplace, like buying a slave. Ex agarazzo. Same root word, new beginning, X. X just simply means out of. That's all it means. When you see it, it means out of. Like exit. To buy out of a marketplace. This it has a nuanced meaning. Agarazzo means to buy in a marketplace. X agarazzo means to buy out of, never to go back to the marketplace. When you use this word when you wrote your contract that you bought him, X. Agarazzo, it means he can never be sold in the market as a slave again. He is your possession forever. Good, bad, indifferent. Because what happened often was they would buy their slaves and they wouldn't like them. So what would they do? Sell them again. We don't want that guy. But if you signed a contract which explicitly said you bought him from, out of the market, that means he's off the market. You can't sell him again. And that's used in the New Testament also. In Galatians 3, verse 13, it says, Christ ex agarazzo redeemed us. We can't be sold again. Once He bought us, we're His. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Two words. Third word. Comes from luo. The word luo. And there's several ways that it's written with several meanings, little, little nuances. Here is apo latruosis. That's the way it is written in Ephesians 1, 7. Now, what does that mean? It means to loose, 
to set free from slavery, to deliver. That's what the word means in our text. All this background, and yet here's what the word means, to deliver from, to set free. In Him we have freedom, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. In Titus 2.14 it says, Who gave Himself for us to redeem us. Same word as Ephesians 1.7, From all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. First Peter 1, 18 through 19, one of the most famous places this word is used. You'll love this one. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. What was the price? The ransom price for you and for me. It was the blood of His precious Son, Jesus Christ. God paid a ransom price in the blood of His own Son that you and I might be delivered from sin, not once, but forever. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1.7. In Him, we have redemption. Notice he didn't say, we got it, but he says, we have it. It's a present tense thing, isn't it? Look at your text. In Him, we have redemption. It's not just a past tense thing, it's a present thing. We have it now. The contract is signed with His blood. Whenever the enemy attacks and talks about, well, that's something that happened years ago, you've sinned since then. What if God doesn't want you anymore? What if you're a bad slave? What if God's going to return you to the market? Now you haven't kept the perfect law of God. How can you say you're redeemed? We can say, because He bought us out of Forever, the slave market, and the price was not silver and gold, it was his blood. The contract was signed in his blood. That's what you tell the enemy when he attacks you about your ongoing struggle with sin. You tell him, I was bought out of the market, not in the market. I can't go back. And a reason, another reason I can't go back is because he signed it in his blood. As long as his blood is good, I'm redeemed. We don't depend on perishable things that come and go. We depend on the imperishable blood of Christ. So we are set free. We see it here in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. We see it in Titus 2, 14. But we see it in our text, Ephesians 1, 7. The infinitely righteous God is offended by the infinite offense of the sinner. You say, no, it's not infinite. My sin is finite. I sinned, I have sinned, no matter how much it is, a certain amount. And that's all I've sinned. It's not infinite. So I can pay the price. I can pay the price. Some of you may have think, may think this way. There's a certain amount of time I've got to pay. I agree with that. I've got to go to purgatory for a certain amount of time. But once I've paid for all my sins, I'm set free. I've paid the price. The problem is, you're thinking with finite mind. Infinite God is offended by us. Because we have offended an infinite being, the offense is now infinite, not finite. So how are you going to pay for it? The Bible gives you two options. Sinner, this morning, listen closely to this. Saddle light word studies, all that stuff you just did. That's I don't get I don't know. Get this. Every sin in the universe will be paid for. What payment plan will it be under? 
If it's under your payment plan, in other words, you're going to pay, be forewarned. You're paying an infinite being, God Himself. And so the price is infinite. That means you will go to heaven for infinity. I mean, you will go to hell for infinity. You will never be freed from there. Because you cannot. If you suffer in hell, separated from God, for a thousand years, you haven't begun. You haven't removed not one sin, not one offense. Fast forward a million years. You still haven't paid not for one lie you ever told. Zero. You write the number. Put the zeros out. Do whatever you want to do with your fine calculator. I'm telling you, the infinity sign means you can't pay for it. It's never ending. You aren't earning anything with God. Not in this life, and you can't pay it off in the next. So one payment plan is you try to pay. That one's open to you. Or the second one, in Him, we have redemption. In Him, we have redemption. You say, I can't pay. I throw myself at the mercy of the court. Is there any way it can be paid? And God's answer is yes. In Him, it can be paid. Because the infinite God, righteous God, offended by finite sinners, but they've committed infinite offense because He is infinite, their sin is paid by, by the infinite work of the infinite Redeemer. You throw yourself at His mercy and say, I can't pay God. What will become of me? He says, believe in my Son. In Him, you can have redemption. How does that work? Infinite pays infinite. Jesus Christ never sinned. He had nothing to die for. He could and should rightly have lived forever. But He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. So that we might have His righteousness. The debt must be paid. And the only one who can pay it without an infinitely long stay in hell is Jesus Christ. And so we have in Him redemption. Now why in? Because Paul's not talking about the cause of redemption. I know that might confuse you, but he's not talking about right here the cause. He's talking about the proximity and the relationship of redemption. It's in Christ. What does that mean? He didn't stay at a distance and say, you know, I'll pay for it, but I don't have to like it. We were redeemed in Him, which means He came and spread Himself over us, took our punishment, and gave us His righteousness. And now we are in Christ. It's a relationship term. He chose in Him, not through Him, because we are in relationship now with Him. In Him, we have redemption through the shedding of His blood. So we move from this relationship to the cause. God has forgiven our sin in the work, through the work of Jesus Christ. We've received forgiveness of sins by His blood. The text says, in Him we have redemption through the cause of our redemption is His blood. 
the, the cost of our redemption. The cause is His blood. We have received forgiveness of sins by His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, our sins. At the beginning of the verse, we see in, but here we see through. So what, what do we say about this? Well, Calvin, when he preached this text, made this comment, quoting him. God puts our sins out of His remembrance and drowns them in the depths of the seas. And moreover, He receives the payment that was offered Him in the person of His only Son. We have the forgiveness of sins. You were not only redeemed, but God has separated you from the cause or the reason you needed to be redeemed. He has taken, taken that from you and buried it in the sea of Christ's blood. It's buried. It's taken away. It's gone. He doesn't see you that way any longer. He sees you in Christ. Chuck Colson in his book, Who Speaks for God? I read it a long time ago. tells the story of a man named Albert Speer. And if you're here, you might not know not who this man was, but he was the personal confidant of one Adolf Hitler. He was credited as being the singular force behind keeping the concentration camps going. He was the mastermind, in a sense. At his, uh, uh, he, he was being interviewed, Colson saw him being interviewed on Good Morning America. Spears, who, because he's the mastermind of it, is complicit and guilty of the murder of millions of people, Jews and others. Spears is the only person of the 24 people tried at Nuremberg. He's the only one who did not excuse himself. He stood up and took the blame. He said, I am guilty. Morally, I was wrong. He's the only one of the 24. He spent 20 years in a prison. In the interview with Good Morning America, Colson quotes him as saying, the interviewer asked, you've said the guilt which you incurred can never be forgiven or it shouldn't be. He said that before he went in. At his trial, he said, I should never be forgiven. I should never be expunged of this. Do you still, after spending your time in prison, feel this way? Spears' response I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't get rid of the guilt. This book, he had just written a new book, this book is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. The interviewer, I asked him one more time, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? Spears shook his head. I do not think it is possible. Colson sums up his thought about it. He says, For 35 years, Speer had accepted complete responsibility for his crime. His writings were filled with contrition, warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought expiation, all to no avail. I wanted to write to Speer to tell him about Jesus and his death on the cross, about God's forgiveness, about God's redemption in Christ. But there wasn't time. The ABC interview was his last public statement. He died shortly after. He spent 35 years trying to atone for his own sin. And some of you are right there. I personally have counseled women who aborted children. There may be some of you here. 
And the biggest overwhelming thing I hear from them is, I cannot ever get rid of the thought of the guilt of what I've done. I have sat across the table from adulterers as they cry their eyes out, having lost their families and lost their standing in the community, and they look at me and say, I can't ever be forgiven for what I've done. Listen, you adulterer here today, you person who has aborted a child, you dad who abuses your children, you mother who lies every day as you hide your, 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 your continual sin of alcoholism, whoever you are, listen to me. In Him, you can have redemption. Outside of Him, you will never have redemption. Outside of Him, you can labor and work for 35 years and die with no atoning with no forgiveness, with no acceptance, with no ridding of the guilt. Or today, you can throw yourself at His mercy and beg Him to cover your sin, to expiate it, cover it, propitiate it, pay for it, separate it from you under the depths of His Son's blood, and He will no longer remember whatever you've done. I don't care what you've done. You cannot out God and His grace. God willingly, lovingly redeems us, Christian, by Son, by the blood of His Son. And so we have redemption through Him. I remember being five and uh, going to the corner market at my neighborhood. It was a laundromat at the time with a little candy shop there, some something of the sort. My friend Brad from across the street and I rode our bikes all over town. I mean literally all over town. And that was a frequent place to stop. And we liked to play um, the video games, the arcade games, those old ones, Pac-Man and whatnot. One day we were there. We didn't have any more money. But we really wanted a piece of bubble gum. So I went and talked to the person at the counter and Brad walked over to the candy counter and discounted a few. We went around the building, unwrapped and chewed them as fast as we could. Get rid of the evidence, you know. And I remember as a five-year-old, tender conscience little boy, laying in my bed that night, sick to my stomach. I had stolen gum. The gum cost less than five cents a piece. I might have eaten two pieces. But you would have thought I had stole millions of dollars. My conscience was wearing me out. And I remember my dad making me take my money and go back to the man at the store and pay the price for that gum. Ransom myself out of my sin. And it felt good for a moment. But from that moment on, every sin I ever committed, God graciously brought to mind the guilt of it. And it never went away. It only got bigger as the sins got bigger. And some of you college students sitting here today listening, your, your face tells me all I need to know about your guilt. You feel awful about your life. 
I don't want to ding you about your life. I don't want to tell you not to live your life. I want to say to you, no matter what you've done, no matter who knows it, there is one who can pay for what you've done. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. He can and will pay the price, has paid the price for you. No matter what you've done, you cannot out His grace. God has done it all, all to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Christ and God washed it white as snow. So, we've looked at half of a verse. And you're saying, what of it? Okay. Redemption. Yippee. First of all, Christian, if that's your attitude about the redemption, which we've just talked about, you need a soul check. You obviously don't know who you are. Neither do you fully understand who He is. If your response to the fact that in Him we have redemption is, who's playing today? Are we going to miss the one o'clock kick? You need a soul check. The price He paid you, you in this life couldn't pay, and in the next you would spend all of eternity paying. He paid it. So how do we apply it? This is deep theology, man. How do you apply that? Well, it's pretty simple. I just ask this question of you, Christian. You've heard about your redemption. You know what it cost. It cost his blood. It cost his life. It cost the infinitely perfect Son of God death on a cross. So, Christian, do you live your life As if you are redeemed. How do I know if I live my life? If I was to follow you, if anybody was to follow you, would they say you're a slave to righteousness or a slave to sin? Just by your actions. Just by your words. Just by your countenance. Would they say, yeah, he's still a slave to sin. She's still... In bondage, or would they say, you know, something's different about that guy. I don't know what it is, but something's not, he, you know, he, he passes up more than he takes. Which is it? Second question I would ask of you, because I don't like asking myself, right? Second question I would ask you today, Christian, in application of this sermon, is are you as a redeemed one, forgiving others the way you have been forgiven. You know, hey, Carl, stay in the theology, dude. Stay off my toes. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? If you forgive not your brother his trespasses, your Father in heaven will not forgive you your trespasses. If you Do not act like a redeemed one. It might be that you're not a redeemed one. How do redeemed ones act? They bestow the grace they have been given. 
say, well, Carl, you don't know what that person did to me. I don't need to know. I don't mean to make what they did light. It was probably heavy. Trust me. There's a lot of heavy things done in this life. And they hurt really bad. But the question you and I have to ask is, what has anyone ever done to us that is more grievous, more despicable than what we have done to Him? And if He, by His good grace, as we will see next week, has extended redemption to us in His Son and forgiveness of our trespasses, how can we then hold a grievance, an anger, a hurt towards another person? When you do that, live in unforgiveness, you are setting yourself up as the infinite one who has been infinitely offended by whatever has done it, and you're exacting a price from them. So when Jesus says, forgive them as you yourselves have been forgiven, that's what he means. When Jesus tells a story about a debtor who owed a debt, and he couldn't pay it, and the man let him go, and then he drags another poor man in and demands that man be put in prison because he can't pay his debt, And the twist in the story, the man who had freed him puts him in prison the rest of his life. Throws away the key. Why? Because he had not extended the grace which he had received. So don't explain those texts away. Don't just try to make them say something they're not saying. Jesus means it when he says, forgive others as you have been forgiven. And he's basing it on this theology. In him, we have redemption. And he's asking us the question, what have they ever done to you that is more than what you've done to me? Are you God? If not, then forgive. That's what he's saying. So Christian, two applications. Are you living in light of your redemption? One test question of that is, are you forgiving others? the way you yourself have been forgiven. You say, no, I'm not. I'm not. Then ask forgiveness. And He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then extend forgiveness. Sinner, lost person. I think the application is clear, right? You're here and you're lost. You now are living under the debt and punishment of your sin. You are condemned, as the Bible says. You are dying. This minute you are dying. Will you stand stubbornly and pay for your sin, or will you accept? Will you place yourself under Him as your Lord? Will you say, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. This is a simple application with profound consequence. I'm convinced that a revival can break out in a church that lives as if they are redeemed. Not only in their blamelessness and holiness and their loving community, but one component of that loving community is forgiveness. Extended to one another as He has extended it to us. I'm convinced a revival can break out from that. I believe it. 
And I'm convinced that it can start today. And it can start with you. And it can start with me. And we're going to pray. And we're going to sing a song to end. But as we pray and as we sing, just ask Him to redeem you. Take Him at His word. Christian, in your heart now, extend forgiveness. Some of you have been holding grudges for years against family, against friends, against co-workers. And you need to pick a phone up this afternoon after you've dealt with God and you need to call that person and you need to sit down look them in the eye and forgive them. And some of you are living with the person you need to forgive. When we lived as a community of redeemed people, I believe revival begins with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven.